<laughs> okay, which one of you hosts blinked us out? <laughs> oh, wait for me to come back here. We're missing a few. Lynn hasn't made it back yet. Hi, I know there we are. Who else is on for Lynn and Oh, yeah, Lynn. All right, we'll go ahead and pray and they can join us in progress. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eye for our mind to understand the gospel teaching. Implant in us all so appear the blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. Without the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, Jesus our glory, together with the unoriginate Father, and all holy, good, and life giving spirit, now and ever, to the age of ages. Amen. So. We are in Matthew 5, and we are in the so-called Beatitudes. Um, as we begin this morning, what I wanted to do is uh, make a comment, a very general, generalized comment. Um, so... In, in the Orthodox liturgy, what would we probably all agree is the highlight? What does it lead to? Communion? Yeah, I think most of us would probably agree. And I think there's even, um, you could make the statement that is the high point of, of the liturgy. But there's another one that doesn't quite get the same universal understanding of the importance. Any guesses? When we kneel to pray. So yeah, that's an important one because we're, we're, we're asking the Holy Spirit to come down and change our gifts of bread and wine and make them into the body and blood of Christ so we could have his life in us. That's part of that whole of process. That's a good guess. How about the uh, reading of the gospel? Good guess, Elaine. Now, Linda said the great entrance, which is also a high point, but you can see how all of those, whether it's the great entrance or the what we call the anaphora, the prayer of asking God to, to come and, and change our gifts or receiving communion, all of that's part of that one process. But the underrated part of the liturgy is the reading of the gospel. Um, you'll notice that um, people, certain you know, community, well, every, every Orthodox community struggles with people coming on time. And you, we don't sense that urgency of coming before the scriptures are read, that you feel about coming before communion. And it's not just that it, it happens earlier. Um, my point is that you would have a hard time arguing that the hearing of the gospel is less important than receiving Holy Communion. And we know the reverence that we have around receiving communion because we do the great entrance and the honor and the prayers and um, the scriptures 
we sometimes can mistake it as sort of a, well, it's nice, but. But what I wanted to bring to your attention is um, that's our own, um, I would say, misunderstanding. Because if we receive in communion the body and blood of Christ, and he's the word of God, then we're receiving God in, in the Eucharist, which is absolutely true. And don't take anything I'm saying to say it's not important. It's absolutely as important. It's even much more important than we think it is. What I want to talk about for a few minutes here is the relative importance of the scriptures and particularly the gospels. Okay. Um, there really is no legitimate argument to say that the reading of the gospel is any less crucial than the Eucharist. Now, why might we make that mistake and say, well, it's not as important as communion? Where might we get some wrong ideas about it being of lesser importance? Is it because it changes every Sunday, but communion is really the same? We're receiving Christ's body and blood? That could be, yeah. There could be that sort of, it's not the same, so it doesn't have the same emphasis. That could be it. Maybe it's the point that it exists within the service. So the communion is towards the end. It's like the culmination as opposed to the gospel being in the middle. Right. Yeah, that's another one. You, you can tell that at least the second half of the liturgy really leads up to communion. If you look at it, there really is almost like a double cycle in the liturgy. And the first part that ends with the gospel and then the homily really is a high point. And then we sort of restart the cycle. Now, during Lent, you hear, and during the presanctified liturgy, this, uh, sometimes you hear the deacons say, depart catechumens, depart, all catechumens depart, all, no, no catechumen remain. That was actually part of every liturgy. And we typically don't say it because these days we're not asking our catechumens to depart. Someday we might, but for now we don't. And so we don't often say that in the regular liturgy on Sundays. Um, it's funny that you say that, Father, because um, uh, right now at St. Paul's, we have uh, nine or 10 catechumens. And every Sunday they go up there for the prayer. I think it's right after the gospel or the great entrance. I can't remember which. And then when he says, catechumens depart, then they all go back to their pews. <coughs> so they're not leaving the church. They're just leaving the front. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm looking forward to the day that we're going to do the same thing. Only um, I'm going to ask them to leave, not because the rest of the is important, but they're not going to receive Holy Communion. Catechumens are by their station, not receive the Eucharist. And that's where in the ancient church, they would have gone for their education. And someday we'll, we'll get there. We're not there yet. But um, so there is this idea of a, a, a high point and then a sort of reset and then you build up to communion. So I think because like, I think it was Linda, you said it's not at the end. That's one reason we mistake it. But if you look at what, the scripture is and look at how we treat it you know that on the altar at the center of everything is not the bible it's the book of the gospels matthew mark luke and john arranged in as we read them throughout the year 
Um, so if you look at where we put it, that should tell you how important it is. Part of the reason I think we don't understand it is you go home and you have one of these and you put it on your bookshelf or on your nightstand or whatever. And you, um, but that shouldn't give us the wrong idea that it's any less important than the book of the Gospels on the altar. The reason we put that book of the Gospels on the altar is because in every Bible, in every book of the Gospels, the words are that important. So I say that by way of saying when we study the scriptures, understand that what we're doing is no less important than, in a sense, preparing for Holy Communion. That this is God's way of communicating to us, even in a way that we don't get in Holy Communion. Holy Communion has its own set of qualities that make it as crucial as it is. But this is no less crucial. And I just wanted to point that out because I think sometimes we Orthodox think that, of course, not all of you, because you're here at Bible study, but a lot of Orthodox say, well, Bible study is a Protestant thing. You know, that's what the Protestants do. Um, thank God they do it. Uh, we didn't pick a Bible study from them. They learned it from us. It just to happen to be that our, our church hadn't done it very often for a while. And it's, there's historical reasons for that lack of education things, but we're now getting to a point of recover our own tradition. All that to say, when we are doing what we're doing this morning, the receiving of the word, the word of God, is no less the word of God than receiving Holy Communion. It's, it's the same, it's the same God, it's the same word, it's the same value. So, uh, understand how important this is. And so I, it's why I appreciate, by the way, those of you that do make the time to do this. Um, I appreciate it a lot. As, as a priest, my job is to do what I can do to lead people to the kingdom of heaven. It's my one and only job. I do it lots of different ways. Bible study is among the top two or three things that I do. Leading the study of scriptures is is there. There are very few things. It's it's at it's at the top. It's it's you know I serve services, I I hear confessions and guide people, and I lead and I, I teach the scriptures. Everything else really comes far down below that, and you know someday hopefully more and more of us our people are going to understand how crucial this is. But I want you to understand how much I think it's important, and therefore I appreciate all of you. Uh, taking the time to, to study the scriptures as you all do. Any thoughts or questions that before we get into Matthew 5? Um, I have a comment on that. Um, Jesus is often referred to as the word. And so when we read the gospel, I mean, we're, we're talking about Jesus, the word. Yes. So That's absolutely right. So receiving the word from the scriptures and receiving the word in the Eucharist, it's the same word. It's the same reception. Yep, absolutely right. And we appreciate that you are doing the Bible study. Well, Very you much. are welcome. All right, so let's stop talking about studying the Bible and let's study a little bit here. Um, I don't know that we got past the first of the Beatitudes. Is that right? That's what I wrote. 
we read it all, but we didn't really talk about no. more than the beginning. No. And I just want to echo again the comment we made last week so we understand what we're reading. It's not, well, it is prescriptive, like a prescription, like do this, but it does it by way of description. It's saying this is true. It's true that the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know if we said this last week, but who is the there? Whose is the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 5, 3? The poor. Which poor? The poor in spirit. There you go. Okay. Remember last week, we kind of got hung up a little bit, and I'm glad we had a good discussion about it doesn't say get out of these things. It's telling you, blessed are you when those things are happening. Because when those things are happening, then you can receive whatever the blessing happens to be. Because a lot of us see it as, I'm poor in spirit, I need to get out of that. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, because, in this case, yours, meaning those that are poor in spirit, have the kingdom of heaven. So what's, what's the uh, logical conclusion? If I'm no longer poor in spirit, then what? I'm in the kingdom. Say that again, Brian? I'm in the kingdom. Yeah, then it is the kingdom is not mine. You see how that works? They're locked together. It's not about overcoming something and then getting there. It's being in that condition because that's what will provide the blessing. Okay? So if that's the case, then going to verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is it good to mourn? It depends on what we're mourning. <laughs> okay. I think mourning is a is the it's like the extension of a compassionate soul. I mean, if you're compassionate, that's a good thing, right? Right. Why is it good? Because, because you love the people around you. Yep. You love the people that you have compassion on or right. for. Yeah, and if you think about that, think about being the other side of mourning with somebody. You're mourning because they're mourning. And so because you're with them in that way, you are a comfort to them. Does so, it have anything to do with um, sin or um, uh, doing evil things and asking for forgiveness? In what way? I, I'm not sure. I'm just reaching. Yeah. Yeah, I think there could be all kinds of reasons for mourning. Now, what's beautiful here is he doesn't limit it to any one way. He doesn't say, bless you if you mourn your sins or you mourn the loss of a loved one. He's saying you're blessed if you mourn, because when you do, you'll be comforted. So what's the blessing? Is it the mourning or the comforting? 
comforting. Comforting. Yeah. So you're going to see how the structure works. You get the blessing, which is the comfort, but you're blessed when you do the thing that brings the blessing. Does that make sense? Yes. In other words, it's not just blessed those who mourn, period. Blessed are those who mourn, comma, for, because you'll be comforted. And Father, what Al just said about you've done something wrong and you're mourning that you made a mistake or you've sinned. So where does the comfort come in? That's a great question. Any thoughts? I guess. There you go. Okay, so if you don't mourn your sin, what are you not going to do? Be comforted. Right. Be forgiven. Okay. What was that, Jane? Be forgiven. Yeah, so in other words, you have to have the difficulty or at least not be so self-sufficient that there's room for God to do what God wants to do. Because you'll notice here, and he's not really specific how it happens, but there is a condition that is, in some ways, uh, difficult. In different ways, it's difficult. But in, in all of them, in other words, unless you do these things, <clears throat> you might not realize you have a need. Right? Doing these things puts you in a position of having room for God to do what God wants to do. Does that make sense? And I, I know it can be complicated, but what I want us to do is make sure we're hearing it as he says it, not as we assume. Because whenever you get to a familiar passage of Scripture, one of the difficulties is we're going to default to how we've read it before and what we concluded. If it's a new Scripture, it's easy to go, I'm not sure what that means, let me think about it. If it's a familiar one, we have to overcome a resistance that is an unspoken, even an unrecognized assumption. Oh, I know what this means. Mm. And so if we're going to really listen to what Jesus is saying, we have to sort of wipe the, the previous slate clean a little bit, or at least be open enough to go, I don't know what this means, or I have to be open to the fact that maybe I don't know what this means, and see it, having spent some time on it, you know, carefully looking at it closely, to be ready to change for what it's actually saying. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. On this one, what I want to see is that you have in each one of these a couple that don't always seem to go together. You saw in the last one, bless those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Our assumption is those are opposites. If you're mourning, you are, by definition, uncomforted. But he's saying, bless you who mourn, because that's when you will be comforted. This one looks a little more like it doesn't go together. Why, why is it strange to hear, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? Would being meek be, hum, hum, be a humble person? Yeah. And what do humble people normally get in our imagination? Nice guys finish last. Right. <laughs> Any of you come from big families? Lots of kids? Okay. Describe dinner time at your house. 
growing up. <laughs> it's like catch as catch can, you know. You, you, the first people that grab are the first people that get. Yeah, yeah. Vicky will describe it. She's the youngest of seven, and like if you didn't get in there quick, if you were me, you weren't getting anything. Right. That's our assumption. That's what we've experienced. So it really is strange to hear, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit something. If he said, blessed the meek, for they shall inherit a little bit, you'd go, well, that's unusual, because you, you wouldn't think they'd get anything. But they inherit the earth. But is inheriting the earth our objective in life? I thought it was more to inherit the kingdom. So why do we want to get the earth? Good question. Anyone always ask the best questions. Yeah, our, our assumption, again, we've got to challenge our assumptions. Our assumption is, and this, I would say, comes from a very Western mindset of do good in this life, get rewarded in the next, right? But here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let's answer Alan's question. Why, unless Jesus is now switching gears and saying what's bad to do, but he's not. He's saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What can we infer logically from that? The new earth, meaning the new king, the kingdom to come. Well, I don't see that in here, but it's a nice idea. <laughs> well, okay. What can we infer based on what Jesus is actually saying? In my study Bible, the last uh, for that for that verse, it says that um, not the power possession of the world, but the new earth which is everlasting. Great, it's beautiful. I know you didn't write it. No, uh, I didn't. <laughs> right, but it's my problem with the Orthodox Study Bible at times. Doesn't say it. <laughs> that says it in my. This is my Orthodox study Bible. I know it says it in the footnotes. And my problem with with this study Bible, like a problem with a lot of study Bibles, if it reflects what's there, to me that's helpful. Okay. Only I'm not seeing it in the text. Uh, is there like a original word for the word earth that means something other than earth? That's or a is great it question? Let's see. Let's see what he's saying we're going to inherit. Theme Gene. Nope. Is it going to become heaven? It's what we would call the planet, the world, the, the, the world around us. The, um, it's the same root as we use for geography. It, like this geography is the writings about the earth. Father. Well, I could interject for just a second. Uh, uh, putting it in his, its historical context, I wonder if Jesus is not saying to the Jewish people who were under subjection to the Roman Empire that the meek, in other words, if you obey your heavenly father and meekness, meaning deference to ones in authority, or deference to ultimately to God, that that is how you're going to inherit that which God has promised. And in the Jewish context, that means Eretz Israel, the land. 
the land of promise, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, I'm sure it means the whole world and maybe will extend spiritually to uh, the new earth. But in this context, I wonder, since trying to remember who he's talking to, if it didn't have meaning to the Jews for that purpose. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a good thought. That's how many at the time may have heard it. But he did it. He could have said inherit the land or the land of your fathers. So I think people could have heard it that way. Right. This is this is Matthew, the, the gospel of grace to all people. And think about that for a second. We're going to get to inherit in a minute, but in terms of what we inherit, um, how could you inherit the earth? You could inherit Judea. You could inherit the Roman Empire. What does it mean that we're inheriting, or whoever is the blessed, are, are inheriting the earth? I can't help but think about today is Earth Day, isn't it? Yes. There you go. Good. So we're inheriting what we see, our, our environment, and we should take care of it and honor it and whatever. Yeah, and, and so let's look at Earth Day for a second, because I think what's really good about it, it says, take care of this place. Be good stewards of it. That's great. Here's where I think the negative side of any any non-religious or non-Christian perspective. Who's according to the people who support promoting Earth Day? Whose is the Earth? Ours. It's ours, right? Mm -hmm. Take care of this place that's ours. According to the Bible, <laughs> whose is the earth? What's, what's the last word each of our bodies is going to hear before our caskets are closed? Anybody know? Oh, um, you came from the earth and you won't, shall return. Yeah, in some of the books it has that. Right before that, what's in all the books, it's a psalm verse. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's what the priest says when he's putting dirt or ashes on our body in the form of a cross. It's the last thing your physical body ever experiences before it's buried. So it Yeah. So the earth is the, the Lord's. In other words, and this is where it's going to lead us right into understanding inherit. It doesn't say obtain, it doesn't say blessed be for they shall obtain or um, receive. Blessed be for they shall inherit the earth. And if the Bible is clear saying the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then it's only God's to give. What's that, Alan? We inherit it then for a short period of time while we are here on the earth. Well, that's again, it's an assumption. We don't know. We just know that he's saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, but if, it's, if, it's the, if the earth is the Lord's, then by inheriting it, he is loaning it to us or giving it to us 
to walk on and to breathe and to gather food and to um, provide for us while we're living the earthly life. Yeah, and, and let me connect up to our study of, of, of Revelation. Where is the new kingdom according to Revelation? Our common idea is we leave this earth after we die and we go up to heaven. What did, what did we see happen in Revelation? Do we remember? Last We're couple. here on earth. We yeah, the kingdom came down. In other words, we didn't really leave the earth. Heaven came down and transformed the earth. It doesn't say that we all left. Um, so, again, these ideas that are more modern ideas are really not orthodox, but we've also absorbed them from the culture we've all lived in is, you know, this earth is fading away and we go up into a different place. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view uh, is, at least at this point, inherit the earth, which is the Lord's. We, you know, we could debate whether this is going to be passing away or not, but according to what we know now, it's not going anywhere. Maybe purified, restored, all the rest. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To get back to your question, Alan, it's not necessarily something that we're going to be leaving. And it's something that is can only, according to the Bible, can only belong to God. A nation can belong to a king. A house can belong to a householder. A land can belong to a landowner, but only God owns the earth. And okay. yet, Jesus says someone's going to inherit it. What was that, Mary? Maria? That no, it was me, Father. I I got the sense that that there's two earths. There's the earth today that we live in and then there's the earth after i mean in revelations when when god comes down and he frees the earth from corruption and greed and all the other nasty stuff that's the new earth and that's the earth that the meek will inherit is that not right well we don't really know um yes everything you said is right in terms of it's said in different places. There's a new earth. Is that a second earth? That would be questionable in my mind. There's a renewed earth. I think renewed. Yeah. I mean, that's more so, what you're reading in Revelation. It's a renewed Exactly. Earth. Yeah. So when you inherit the earth, it, there is no sense that you're getting something that's necessarily passing away. That would be, if we were to say that, that we'd be reading it as it's not here. What is here is that someone we'll get to the someone in a minute but what do they do they inherit something that can only come from god now let's look at inheritance for a second how does inheritance work who's before it is handed over whose is the inheritance yeah that's the father the, the previous generation, it's theirs. And inheritance says, I'm giving what is mine to you. Right? Can you earn an inheritance? No. 
buy an inheritance? No. As soon as you buy it, it's no longer an inheritance, it's a purchase. Inheritance can only be given, and it's only given by whose decision? God. The owner. Right, the owner. Exactly. So here we're finding out that the owner of what? Of the entire earth is going to give this inheritance, the whole earth, to somebody. Who's he giving it to? Us. The meek. The meek. And this is again, we're going to look for all the ironies here. Typically, we think of meek as not getting anything because we think of getting stuff as the action of somebody. If I'm Vicky and I'm at the table and she's got her six older brothers and sisters, if she's meek, she's not going to get anything. What is Jesus saying in verse five here about who gets what? All looking in the right place. I'm proud father, of you. Would you uh, father, would um, are you going to the in the direction that you know, with Christ being the one who died after he died, um, the believers inherit the promises of Christ because through his death that passes on to us. Is that kind of- So that may all be true, but where I'm going, where I want us to go is exactly reading these words in verse five. What can we know if we don't know anything else? Because again, we don't want to read into it. We could read from it and connect up and those are good things to do, but we may, we could inadvertently come up with the wrong conclusion, even if it's a nice idea or it's mentioned somewhere else. But we don't want to miss what's here. So when I say what's the meaning of it, I want us to look at, at five and, and verse five and say, okay, what, what is the meaning? If we knew nothing else, what do we know from verse five that you could, you've got to get that firm before you can connect it up to anything else, right? And so I'm not asking about where this fits in the Christian story or in our theology, hopefully we're going to build, we're going to find out what this brick is, and then we'll see how it fits into this whole, the building of, of the, of our teaching and our faith. we got to see what the brick is. So in a worldly sense, meek people get nothing because they're not going out and getting it for themselves, right? By their meekness, by definition, they're not pushing ahead of other people, taking what they can. So here he's saying the meek are blessed. And how are they blessed? What do they get? What do the meek get? An inheritance. Which is the, the earth. earth. Okay. So if you are meek, he's saying you're blessed, not because of what you can get for yourself, but because of what you're going to be given, because inheritance can only be given to you. And what do you get? You get everything. What do you think? 
Father, what is everything? Well, all we know is the earth. We can only go to his words, the earth. Now, what do we know about the earth? It's beyond anybody's, it's beyond any earthly ownership or control. It encompasses all of the known world. There's part of creation. They, the ancients from the earliest days understood that the stars were there was all kind of, of creation, but the earth was the fullness of where we are and what we have. I was reading, I was watching a, a series last year. It was like a docudrama about Mars. And there, the documentary is about what the first colonies are going to be like and what they're going to do. But they got into certain issues like... Um, what what is what is the law on Mars? Right? If I go to Mars and I'm part of an expedition there, whose laws am I following? Whose jurisdiction? If I want to take my fellow astronaut to court, where do I go? There's nowhere to go. Because Mars, we all understand Mars isn't what? It's, it's not the Earth. Some people said, well, maritime law would apply. Well, that's a stretch. <laughs> it's not an ocean. <laughs> it's not an ocean, the, the oceans that we can define as the oceans. It's actually not even water there. So in other words, the Earth is the totality of all that we can see in terms of a, a place we have access to. Remember when uh, in the movie, The Lion King, where um, Simba's father takes him out, he says, everything the light touches is ours. As far as the eye can see, that's the idea. The earth is everything that we can see that we could get to that is part of what is our environment, if you want to use that word, what, everything around us. Could it be that because God created the earth, created the earth, and he is limitless. So we loves, I can hear you. God is limitless. He created the earth. The earth is part of his creation. So we really shouldn't limit that definition just to the earth. If we're inheriting, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's part of all his creation. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, we're making a too narrow of a definition. Well, we could debate it. You, you could make a point, well, it's the earth, it's the creation, it includes everything. And there's there's nothing to say that's that not necessarily true. It might be. What we do know is it's the earth. You might not get Mars and Pluto and Venus, but you get the earth. Everything, every ocean, every mountain, every valley, every hill, every tree. And he's, we talked about revelations and this is the new earth. He's improving what we messed up. So isn't this earth part of his heaven? Could it not be? Could be. We don't know. It's not It's not in Matthew 5. But what we do know is it's not we'll inherit the house. It's not we'll inherit the neighborhood, the city, the land, the region, the empire. It's the earth. In other words, the, the meaning is you get everything. Again, we can debate whether that includes Mars and Alpha Centauri, but short of all that, you get everything here. That's good enough. Yeah. Uh, everything. How does um, 
St. Nicholas fit into the word of, I know we're not on meek anymore, but how does St. Nicholas fit into meek? Because we, in the Treparian, we, I was looking up different Treparians of St. Nicholas, and we use the term meek. Yeah. How do we say it in his Treparian? you remember? Um, it says... Uh, an icon of meekness, canon of faith, icon of meekness, a teacher of abstinence. No, who by his humility. Hold on, let's got it. Who by humility received exaltation. And? Just a minute. <laughs> and meekness. And meekness. Say the whole phrase. And by meekness, wealth, wealth. Thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, Alan. He got his wealth by meekness. Now, what do you know about Saint Nicholas? He came from a wealthy family, right? But he gave it away. But he gave it all away. So you would say, was he a poor man? Yeah, he was a poor man. He gave everything away, and yet what we sing about him is by his meekness. He was rich. So there's a, a, a wealth that at least St. Nicholas we, we sing about that isn't about what you now what you do for yourself. Because he he had it and he, he could have kept it. It's not even just about what going out and getting. He already had it and he gave it away. So yeah, that's a good connection. Because we again we think in human terms or worldly terms or limited terms, we think people tell me all the time, Father, this is how the world works. I was with a bunch of um, young men. This was two nights ago. Um, a lot of the counselors that were there in my later years as a director, and now they're all in their late 20s, early 30s, and they're doing, they got together to do a Bible study or a book study. So it's, it's neat, like these are the kids I knew as teenagers and they're, you know, rocking their kids to sleep and they're, I'll be back in a minute, I gotta put the kid back down. And um, they're talking about how they're trying to live Christian lives, but for example, in their work environment, they're telling me like, this doesn't work. Like if they're meek in their work environment, they're not gonna get ahead. So what do you think my response was? Ahead for what reason? <laughs> yeah. And ahead in what way? In other words, we could say, well, what's that? Profe professionally or financially. Right. And Jesus is going to be, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, one of the reasons that we have this Gospel, the entire book, one of the reasons why Jesus lived the life he lived was to show us that the world doesn't work the way we think it works. And if the world worked the way we thought it works, then you'd say, cursed are the meek, for they won't get anything. Right? That's how the world thinks. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall get everything. They'll be given everything. In other words, just like when we had, remember in, in Revelation, I kept saying to you, 
Revelation is going to tell you it looks like this, but it's really this. Looks like you've been conquered. It looks like you're weak. It looks like you've been defeated. It looks like the powers are unshakable. But here's what's really going on. This is the same message. It's the whole thing about you're going to have two ways of looking at things. And we're never going to be forced into accepting what is Jesus's way of looking at things. But it'll always be offered to us. We'll talk about that on Palm Sunday. Tune in. <laughs> what are we seeing when we see Jesus riding a donkey? Two very different things we can look at. Humility. Or really seeing one thing, but two different ways of looking at it. All right, let's keep going. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What do your translations say for that one? Sound different? Is those the same in yours? Righteous. Mine says they will be filled. They will be filled. Be filled. Okay, good. Mine says righteous. Say the whole thing. Say verse six, your whole thing, Alan. Oh, righteous for they shall be filled. Okay. Say the whole thing, though. Blessed are those who are who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall for they shall be filled. Do the same one then. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that filled, satisfied. It means the same, but when you hear them both together, you get the idea of um, when you are satiated. That's the same word as satisfied, right? What does it mean to be satiated? Yeah. What do you say when you've eaten enough? I'm full, right? That's the idea, that you've been satisfied, satiated. You've received everything. But how do you get there? How do you get filled? Look down. <laughs> Verse 6, how do you get satisfied? But they're not talking here about physical food aren't they talking about spiritual or um well, what does he say what's the word he uses righteousness okay so that's what we're we're supposed to hunger and thirst for so it's not food it's righteousness and how should you seek it, according to Jesus, in verse 6? Hungry and thirsty, Linda says. She's right. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for something? You desire it. You what? Desire it. Okay. Do you, you want it. You want it. You consume it. You want to consume it. Yes. Right? Um, is it, is it, a, do you decide to get hungry or thirsty? <clears throat> you can long for it. I don't know. Right. And why would you long for it? What would, what would be the conditions of longing for it? 
Am I longing for my coffee right now? Well, there's a payoff. <laughs> well, that, that part. But am I longing for my coffee right now? Yes. You, you may be, but if you're really hunger and thirsting, you can't live without it. Okay. Why am I not longing for my coffee? It's in your hand. <laughs> I have it. You cannot thirst while you're drinking water. You can thirst before you drink the water. And your hunger, your thirst will lead you to drink water if you can find it. Your hunger will lead you to eat. Right? In other words, this is a bit of a conundrum. He says, blessed are, the hung are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, if I take satisfaction, I'm full. I have this after Thanksgiving dinner or Easter breakfast, and oh, I am full. And can I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Can I hunger and thirst? complicated one isn't it? A little bit of a, a longing longing for for your relationship to god okay do you long for it father can we say that's what we are doing in this bible study because we want to get closer to god good yeah our hunger and thirst hopefully brought us here and is driving us to like get more to find out what's what he's saying but if we were to say, okay, I went to Bible study uh, yesterday on Thursday. I got a lot out of it. I'm full. Am I coming back next week? <laughs> In other words, there's something about being satisfied with righteousness that when you're satisfied, you continue to hunger and thirst for it. You're always seeking. You're always wanting. Um, you're never satisfied with what you get. Exactly. And you can see how, and I'll just to sort of compare this with a, a principle of our spirituality. If we get to the point where we're doing what we think we're supposed to do, and we say to ourselves, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. What do we call that? Satisfied. Call it pride. It, it's it's the uh, the Pharisee who says, I'm not like that publican over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I have. I, you know, check. I'm good. So we're always going to have the trap if we see ourselves as having obtained righteousness. The trap is going to be, I have it now, and if I have it, I'm by definition no longer hungering and thirsting for it. And a question. Yes. Do we do that? Do, do, do we do that? Do we do what? Do we say, okay, I, I did this, 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 I'm, I'm okay, I'm good with God, that's it? All the time. We do that. All the time. That's, uh, I would say it's not, our, it's not how we were created to be. Jesus is going to try to correct our bad idea. Nobody likes to feel inadequate, 
Um, nobody likes to feel like they're not pulled together, whether they see it themselves or other people are seeing it. We don't like being needy. We want to be, we want to have everything the way it's supposed to be. But if we're like the people in the attitude, we're always going to be seeking. We are needy, but we're still, like Alan said, you're never going to quit striving. That's what he's telling us brings a blessing. Right. Yeah. So if we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, state, we're not going to be satisfied. What I'm trying to point out is if you define satisfaction as the elimination of your hunger and thirst, that's how it works physically, right? I'm hungry. I fill myself. I'm no longer hungry. I'm going to stop. What am I going to stop eating? What Jesus is saying, how it works with righteousness, if you're hungry and thirsting for it, you're going to be satisfied. But somehow that satisfaction doesn't eliminate your hunger and thirst. I looked up the word righteousness, and a couple of places it says virtuous, honorable, morally right. And then it also says um, free from guilt or sin. Right. And we're never free from guilt or sin. So we're always correct trying to get there. If we're accurate, yes. But where we can make the mistake is saying, well, I did this and this, and that's it. And now if I stop doing this and this, now I'm good. If I do that, I'm no longer hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When people come to confession, one of my biggest jobs is to tell them that finding their sin was good. So you, I might have used this analogy. If you learn from the doctor that you have a disease, could be cancer, could be whatever kind of disease, and they found it, is that bad news or good news? Good news. Good. Right. But it can feel bad, right? Who wants yeah. to have a disease? Right. Good news they find, especially because in this in the idea of righteousness and sin, it's always curable. Right? How can you become righteous according to Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 6? How do you achieve righteousness? You hunger and thirst for it. There you go. And you can only hunger and thirst for it if you can accept the fact that you're not filled with it already. You see how these don't make a lot of earthly sense, and they're all this, they all share this, this quality. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Well, if I've been comforted, I no longer mourn. But he's not saying that. He's saying, blessed are you if you mourn, because you'll be comforted in your mourning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. You got the kingdom of heaven. How can you be poor in spirit? Somehow, according to Jesus, you only get the kingdom of heaven when you remain poor in spirit. Because as soon as you're not poor in spirit, you don't have the result. None of these make earthly sense. So if we're going to understand them, we have to understand that Jesus is trying to tell us there's something beyond logic that works. What's logic? Think about this for a second. 
What is logic? Reasonable. Reasonable. Yeah. Alan Lindbuth says reasonable. What's reasoning? I would say logic is the height, the culmination of human understanding. And faith is not Faith is not, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, faith is not, not logical. logical. It doesn't work along the same rules. But and we wouldn't be reading this or studying this if we thought we all had the answer. Maybe we should be reading the Beatitudes every day just, yeah. to, just to keep us understanding yeah. and striving. Yeah. So we're going to cut off here a little bit after 11. Um, any comments or questions? I covered a couple of verses, but I think it's really important to understand that when we're going to listen to Jesus, we're not going to hear what we expect to hear. Here we expect to hear, we haven't heard him. He's not talking logically. He's not talking in, in the ways that anybody ever talks. Which is, by the way, why eventually they're only going to have one choice kill him what's that what was you, did you just say their only choice the people that can't accept this word the only solution they're going to have is to kill him oh. because this wisdom the way he's talking undercuts everyone but god he even undercuts those who are using their religious connection or status to claim any kind of power. This is an absolute overturning of any earthly sense of power or um, self-satisfaction. In other words, you can live, as, as my friends would say, this is the way the world works. You can live along those lines, or you can live along these lines, but they don't go together. You can't, you can't mold the word of God into something that the world can accept. So you're either going to have people in the world that accept it, and while they're still in the world, or they've already sort of left the world, at least left the world's ways, or you reject the word. Those are your two choices. And we're going to see through Holy Week that the world, by and large, rejected him. We don't want it. We don't want it. It's not a coincidence that the one they crucified is the one who said these words. You can do a whole Bible study series on just the Beatitudes. Yep, we could, we could, we could spend months. What I want you to learn is A, what, what's in each verse and what they're saying, but B, what, because Jesus is going to continue teaching. This is not the end of his teaching. This is the beginning. This is his first sort of extended discourse, his first book, in a sense, his outlook, his perspective. And we're going to see all on the way that he's never going to change his perspective. And so it's always going to have one of two effects. People are going to abandon their old way in a way that doesn't make any earthly sense, or they're going to be against him. We already saw this. Go back to, uh, um, let me see if I can find it really quickly here. 
Go back to chapter 4, uh, verse 18. He walks by the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother cast into the sea. They're fishermen. He said to them, follow me. I'll make you fish. And the men immediately left their nets and followed him. That's one way of reacting to Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. They're not asking who's going to pay the bills. They're not asking what about James aren't going to say who's going to help dad out in the business. Jesus says, follow me. And they go. It doesn't make any earthly sense. It can only work if you depend upon God. That's going to be Jesus's message. Or you're not going to want his message. It doesn't fit. You can't. And this is where all of us are really struggling. We want to fit his message into our version of the world. And it will never fit well. There's always going to be conflict. If you think about our sin, our sin is by definition what we do when we don't want to accept living by this new reality or this new way of, of looking at things. Well, so that wraps up for today. I don't have my calendar on me. Oh, there it is. We are not here next week. We're going to be hearing the word read to us in the, in the, uh, in the services. Lots of Bible study next Thursday. <laughs> Morning and night. It's not at this forum. Love gospel readings Thursday night. First one's about 20 minutes long. So no Bible study next week or the week after, which is May 6th. But God willing, we're back together on May 13th. Blessed Pascha to everybody. Yes. Same to all of you. Thank you. Y'all take care. All right. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Have a blessed Easter, everyone. Thank you. Bye.